0: At 8 o'clock on the evening of Easter Sunday, the 23rd of April, 1916, a poet and university lecturer named Thomas MacDonagh sat down at his desk in a leafy South Dublin road and wrote a brief statement whose sometimes veiled and euphemistic language could not conceal a sense
1: of relief. I have now, at 8pm, returned from a visit to Owen MacNeill at Woodtown Park, Ballyboden. I have had a long conversation with MacNeill and Sean Fitzgibbon upon many aspects of the present situation. I hope that I have made clear to them my loyalty to Ireland, my honour as an Irish volunteer, and also, a thing I could not for obvious reasons state, my intention to act with my own council and the position of that council. My future conduct may be different from anything now anticipated by MacNeill and Fitzgibbon. Two honest and sincere patriots though I think wrong in their attitude to military action. They and my countrymen must judge me on my conduct. I have guarded secrets which I am bound to keep. I have, I think, acted honourably and faithfully by all my associates. I have had only one motive in all my actions, namely the good of my country. The council to which Macdonald
0: referred was the Military Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood a body whose intentions and existence were unknown to MacNeill and Fitzgibbon. Together with his colleagues on that council, MacDonagh had just determined that the Rising originally planned for that Sunday should take place the following day. He had, in fact, as his statement tacitly admits, deceived MacNeill, and he wanted to make clear to posterity both the motive and the necessity for that deception. The Military Council of the IRB was a body to whom the Brotherhood had yielded up extraordinary powers, including an absolute discretion as to the making of peace and war. It consisted of seven members, MacDonagh, Patrick Pierce, Eamon Kant, Joseph Plunkett, Sean McDermott, Thomas Clarke and James Connolly. At least four of these were, in any scheme of things, unlikely members of such a body. And of these four, which, one might judge, included Pierce, Plunkett and Connolly, not the least unlikely or improbable was Thomas MacDonagh himself. He had been born on the 1st of February 1878 in Clock Jordan, County Tipperary, the son of a Roscommon schoolteacher and his Dublin-born teacher wife, and after studying for the priesthood at Rockwell, had become a schoolteacher and finally a university lecturer himself. At the time of the Rising, he was a well-known figure in Dublin. One could say a well-known literary figure, except that Macdonough was both more and somehow less than that. In January 1914, he had been called to give evidence in a prosecution relating to the holding of the famous illegal meeting in O'Connell Street at which Jim Larkin had suddenly materialised on the balcony of the Gresham Hotel.
1: The following day, the Manchester Guardian commented. The Macdonough who gave evidence is something more than Assistant Professor of English Literature in University College Dublin, He is also one of the stars of the second magnitude in the constellation of Irish poets which cluster around Mr WB Yeats and AE. He has written the marching song of the new Irish volunteers, is an active worker for the Gaelic revival and wears a kilt on occasions of ceremony. He is, in fact, one of those valuable all-round men who do so much to form the connective tissue of a cultured society and who are so numerous in Ireland just at present.
0: It is a tribute to the improbability of Macdonough's membership of the powerful and secret military council, not only that an unbiased observer at the time would have been likely to say that that was a pretty fair description, but that it still strikes one as being fair and accurate. Accurate, that is, except for what it leaves out. Behind the rather lightweight appearance, and underneath the sometimes febrile enthusiasms, Macdonough was a man of steely will, and by 1916, inflexible determination. He was also, by 1916, a literary critic whose influence is by no means at an end. Since, however, his book, Literature in Ireland, did not appear until after his death, the Manchester Guardian writer had no means of knowing that. And now that we do know it, it adds, in a way, to the improbability of the extraordinary part he finally played in the shaping of modern Ireland. children of Joseph Macdonough, the clock Jordan schoolteacher, and his intelligent English-born wife seem to have been talented. And some of them were to travel, figuratively or literally, a long way from the Tipperary village of their birth. Of Macdonough's three brothers, one, James, was to become the first oboist with the British Symphony of London, and another, John, also a musician, became a singer and actor and toured the United States and England with various operatic and theatrical companies. Thomas's first love seems to have been poetry, and in the National Library in Dublin there is a fragment of an early essay describing a boy who may have had much in common with himself.
1: A boy who loved many things passionately, he grew to love Ireland. But this love was not from his birth, for in the beginning he was affected and thought it was a fine thing to be different from others. He began to nurture the flutterings of beauty within him. He yearned to be a poet, and began of language to make a formal choice. Hasty then, and passionate, easily angered, who was afterwards to come to such philosophic serenity, he battled his little way, hating the constant study of dry things, escaping to solitary thought and the dreaming of beautiful lines, sometimes no lines but broken word sequences.
0: Except, perhaps, for that small and simple phrase, he grew to love Ireland, it might almost have been James Joyce, born four years afterwards, writing of himself or of his fictional surrogate Stephen Hero. And it is important to remember, I think, that Pierce MacDonough, and Plunkard did, to begin with at least, inhabit the same world as Joyce, Podrick Cullum and James Stevens. They were part of the same stirring. The Manchester Guardian writer might well, in 1914, if he had known anything about Joyce, have said that they were part of the same movement, a movement of which Yeats was the father. And the last two, Colum and Stevens, were close friends both of the ultimate IRB man and of the author of Ulysses. One of Macdonald's most easily discernible progressions throughout his life was, like Joyce's, towards a greater sophistication he would not have approved of the idea that to be a republican and a separatist was to be somehow less sophisticated than those who held another view. He began his vocational life as a clerical student in Rockwell College, where he had been sent away to school. Rockwell is a Holy Ghost foundation, and under the Holy Ghost system, students for the priesthood spend some time as teachers in the schools in which they have perhaps been educated themselves. The transitions are not abrupt. Macdonough asked for the habit of the congregation in 1894, the year of his father's death, when he was 16. Seven years later, seven years spent mostly
1: teaching in Rockwell, he wrote to the Superior again. Having, after much hesitation and anxious questioning, come to the conclusion that I have no vocation for the religious life, with sorrow I request you to release me from the obligations contracted by me at my reception.
0: There is no evidence of any great soul-searching, and there is no evidence of any great change in the man either. Although in later years Macdonough may not, as he put it himself, have belonged to any dogmatic creed, he was the same man before and after. Young men of his stamp, who are really romantics of the ideal, often begin as romantics of God. For two years more he taught at Rockwell, then he went to St Kieran's in Kilkenny, after that to St Colman's for Moy. In both places, the students remembered his interest in literature, his enthusiasm for poetry. If it had been almost any other time in Ireland's history, or the world's, say now even, he would have been a provincial schoolteacher with a more than ordinary interest in certain subjects. But this was a time of great stirrings, of self-realisations and reawakenings after which Ireland, even if disillusioned, would never be the same. And MacDonagh in Kilkenny and Firmoy was making himself a part of the dream. Like hundreds of other young men, he joined a Gaelic League class. The inspiration seems to have come from Patrick Kennedy, a local schoolmaster and one of the League leaders. But the class was conducted, as in so many other cases, by a girl, Eileen nicronine an enthusiastic and energetic native speaker from Ballangiri, with whom he helped to organise the first Kilkenny fish. Like other young men, too, he had his eyes fixed on another aspect of the national reawakening, which he and they saw as part of the same movement. While in Kilkenny, he published two little books of poetry in English at his own expense, having sent the manuscript of the first one to no less a personage than W. B. Yeats, who miraculously replied
2: A thousand is far too large an edition for a first book of verse. In England, where there is a larger public for new verse than in this country, 500 or even 300 is a usual edition. You will have to look after the printing, as no Irish printer can be trusted to make a page in which there will be no sign of inartistic antiquated method. Now, about the verses themselves, they show that you have a thoughtful and imaginative mind, but you have not yet got a precise musical and personal language. Whether you have poetical power or not, I could not really say, but I can say that you have not found yourself as a poet. If you are young, and if you feel you have something you must give expression to, I strongly advise you not to publish for the present, but first to read the great old masters of English, spenser Ben Jonson, Sir Thomas Brown, perhaps Chaucer, until you have got our feebler modern English out of your head.' When we study old writers, we imitate nothing but their virtues, for their faults, which were of their own time and not ours, have no charm for us. If we read modern writers, we are likely to imitate their faults, for we share their illusions. Second... I will advise you to translate a great deal from the Irish, to translate literally, preserving as much of the idiom as possible. I don't mean that you will stop at this kind of writing, but it will help you to get rid of the conventionality of language from which we suffer today. I am sorry not to be able to praise your verses more, but your letters have interested me very much and I hope you will do good work yet. If, after this, you still care to dedicate the book to me, you are certainly welcome to do so.
0: In a way, Yeats's letter pinpoints an apparent conflict. In a novel he was working on about this time, MacDonagh has the hero address the audience, but in particular his companions of the Gaelic League, and to them he prophesies in terms which are humorously resigned rather than wistful, that his place shall be in English literature. All his active life, even in St. Enders, he was a teacher of English. He believed, as he said, that a poet had only one language, as he had only one life. Over and over again he testifies to the profound effect the awakening to English literature had had on him as a boy, and most of his pupils remembered the intense enthusiasm he brought to the discussion of it. And yet, Macdonough was, of course, all his life also, from the Kilkenny days on, an enthusiast for the revival of the Irish language, and a believer in the political separation of this country from England. Insofar as there was a conflict here, Macdonough eventually resolved it, when he came to put his most important critical statements together in a book, Literature in Ireland, by prophesying that Ireland stood at the beginning of its own separate individual literature in the English language. He and others like him would have their place then not as the hero of his abandoned novel had said in English literature, but in an Irish literature which would be seen as a separate thing. He identified its principal characteristic, where poetry was concerned, as being a closeness to the norms of Irish speech in English and Irish speech rhythms and he thought that the influence of Gaelic would be subsumed into this new
1: literature through translation. At present, a large amount of translation is natural. Later, when we have expressed again in English all the emotions and experiences expressed already in Irish, this literature will go forward free from translation. Through the English language has come a freshening breath from without. With the Gaelic Renaissance has come a new stirring of national consciousness. These, too, have been the great influences in all new literatures. At that, I can leave it at that freshening and stirring of it.
0: Of course, the idea that Ireland might have, or might come to have, a separate literature of its own in the English language had long been integral to Yeats's thought. But Macdonough's book, already prepared for the press when he went to his death as a member of the provisional government of the Irish Republic, and mentioned in the last will and testament he wrote in Kilmainham, is throughout a plain statement
1: of an important literary claim. My definite conclusions are three: first, that an Anglo-Irish literature worthy of a special designation could come only when English had become the language of the Irish people, mainly of Gaelic stock, and when the literature was from, by, of, to and for the Irish people. Second, that the ways of life and the ways of thought of the Irish people, the manners, customs, traditions and outlook, religious, social, moral, have important differences from the ways of life and of thought which have found expression in other English literature. Third, that the English language in Ireland has an individuality of its own and the rhythm of Irish speech a distinct character.
0: Macdonough's own ambition to be a poet of this new literature was keen. He published, in his brief enough lifetime, no fewer than five books of verse, and he gave more attention than most poets do to the study of English metric. That he, in whom the conflict of destinies may have been stronger than it was in Pierce or Plunkett, is on balance the least interesting of the three, or perhaps we should say four poets among the signatories of the proclamation, we should not forget that Connolly wrote poetry too, is therefore an ironic paradox. But as a critic at least, his place in Ireland's literary as well as her political history is secure. Literature in Ireland is in its way a manifesto. As time goes on, it will also become a landmark, and the prophetic certainty it expresses will be something to which critics of other generations will look back. And from the standpoint of his teaching post and his activities in Fermoy in the autumn of 1907 at least, Macdonough was prepared to make other kinds of prophecy too. In October of that year, he
1: wrote to a friend, Dominic Hackett, who had left Ireland for the United States. A question of yours, if I am dejected by the faults of Irishmen? On the whole, no. About a week ago, I was making a speech at a meeting here, and the whole thing came to me in a phrase. Of tides of thought, there can be no ebb. Our cause is a flowing tide. I believe that the language will die in almost all the present Irish-speaking districts. But it cannot now die as a spoken language. And more important than the language, and more sure of life, is the spirit of our propaganda. There will be no return of whiggery. Half and half nationalism is dying slowly, but dying. It would go in a year or two, but that all the better Irishmen leave it to its fate and do other things. If another Parnellite split threatened today, you would see how the country would turn. All the young men of intellect in the country, and this age of revival has dowered many, are of one mind. The tide will yet run strong.
0: But of course, from the standpoint of later generations, prophetic certainty seems a rather different and more consistent thing than it sometimes does to those who make the prophecies. Less than four months later, in February 1908, he wrote
1: again from Fermoy to the same correspondent. I mean to leave Fermoy next summer, if I at all can, and probably Ireland too. I can more easily get work in London, I think, than in Dublin. There is no other place possible. This place becomes a horror to me. Cullum has gone to London to try to get work on the papers. We all desert Ireland, in body at least.
0: All the more remarkable then, that in the autumn of that same year, the fateful move of his life should have been made. For in September 1908, Macdonough came to Dublin to work with Pearce at St Ender's. It was a move which opened up new worlds to him, which gave him new fulfilment as a teacher, for it is often forgotten how far in advance of his time Pierce's educational ideas were, as a man who wished to converse with other men of his tastes and interests for the move brought him to Dublin, a literary centre round which his hopes had long revolved, and finally as a patriot, though with hindsight we can see clearly enough the irony of the fact that this new beginning was also to prove itself... Within a few short years, the beginning of the end. With Kenny and Moy days he had not been directly involved in politics. The cause to which he had referred was the language movement and all the activities which surrounded it. For the time being now his interests were to be for the most part literary ones. But of course in thinking of his later commitment one must remember that all the activities in which Macdonough and his friends engaged throughout those years, even or perhaps especially the literary ones, were political in their ultimate flow and direction. They were all separatist movements of one kind or another. Meanwhile, something of his attitude to the formalised politics of this particular time
1: was described in a letter to Hackett. I am sorry to hear of cabals in the American branches of Sinn Féin. I am hardly an out-and-out Sinn Féiner myself. The position of three-fourths of those that give support to Sinn Féin is that of our old friend E.T. Kane? What 'er is best administered is best. If the Irish party were, as in Parnell's day, strong and independent, something would be possible, but it is not. If now Sinn Féin administers its cause well, it may win the whole conduct of the case for itself. It is not by abstract principles that any side will win in politics, but by administration.
0: And two years later, when the alliance of the Irish Party and the Liberals under Asquith seemed about to make Home Rule inevitable,
1: he wrote Ireland is all expectancy of Home Rule. Sinn Féin has fallen quite in the background. The main discussion is on the finances of Home Rule. In the Irish Review, we are going to have a series of articles on it. The Gaelic League has, I think, suffered like Sinn Féin.
0: To be a change in many people's thinking of which 1914 was the watershed, and a change in their feeling too. It is customary now to see 1914 and the events of 1916 which followed as marking the triumph of romantic over practical nationalism. It is at least equally possible to see the failure of the Liberal Irish Party Alliance and the outbreak of war as ushering in a new sort of practicality as well as a new urgency where separatist feeling was concerned. But now, for the moment, there was the production of a play when the dawn is come at the Abbey. There was St Enders. There was the acquaintance of those he knew about or admired, not least of Yeats himself. There was the general broadening of horizons and the feeling of being at the centre of things that Dublin brought. There was even literary intrigue.
1: The school is advancing in strength and wisdom and power. A reason for my staying in Ireland, if I had not the old ones, is that we're beginning to publish at St Ender's a series of school books, mostly in Irish and some bilingually. I am commissioned to do three books, English poems by Irish poets, a story in English with an Irish atmosphere and a French text. I hope too to publish this year a new book of poems. I am hot on a plan of mine to make Yeats Professor of English in the new university. No one else had thought of it. I asked Yeats to go in for it, and over a lunch and dinner we settled it all. Then we got Lady Gregory to start work, and now it's quite a practical thing. Yeats had never dreamed it might be possible, but really if we can get him and Coon Meyer and Fitzmaurice Kelly, the great romanticist, and others like that for the chairs... We shall have a real centre of culture, not merely a school for turning out professional men.
0: Whatever about the other poets of 1916, if MacDonough at least was a dreamer, he was a dreamer who thought in practical terms. Of course, Yeats never did become professor of English in the new university, which, it might be argued, did become a school for turning out professional men. And in fact, it was MacDonough himself who, in 1912, following the completion of an MA thesis on Thomas Campion and the Art of Poetry, a subject which reflects his earlier interest in English rather than specifically Irish literature, joined the faculty there. Almost the most striking thing about him in these years is the extent and variety of his interests. With two poet friends, Padraig Colum and Joseph Plunkett, he founded a literary monthly, The Irish Review, whose list of contributors, proof enough that what seemed like many movements was really one, included Yeats, George Moore, A.E. and James Stevens, as well as Connolly, Casement, Pierce, and Arthur Griffith. With Plunkett and Frank Fay, he discussed the formation of a new Irish theatre in opposition to the Abbey. He published two more books of poetry, and when, in 1912, he married Muriel Gifford, his life's course seemed determined. It would be an honourable and fruitful one. It would touch the affairs of others at many points and reflect the growing consciousness of identity in his country. But, in spite of his own poetry, his role would be that of disseminator and inspirer rather than of one who creates and determines events. So it might have seemed and continued to seem, to the writer in the Manchester Guardian and most casual observers, but unknown to MacDonagh and others, the clock had already struck. For on the 28th of September, in the year of his marriage and his appointment to UCD, the solemn League and Covenant was subscribed in Ulster and the Ulster Volunteer Force enrolled. there would ever have been a southern volunteer force, and therefore an instrument for the IRB to use, if there had not first been an Ulster one, is a question we cannot answer. But certainly, though the southern response was delayed, it seemed to most of the time to be simply a response and nothing else. Owen MacNeill's fateful article in the Gaelic League Monthly on Clive Sullish was called The North Began." and his manifesto, which was read at the Great Rotunda meeting, referred to organised aggression.
2: If ever in history a people could
1: say that an opportunity was given them by God's will to make an honest and manly stand for their rights, that opportunity is given us today to drill, to learn the use of arms, to acquire the habit of concerted and disciplined action. To form a citizen army from a population now at the mercy of almost any organised aggression. This, beyond all doubt, is a programme that appeals to all Ireland, but especially to young Ireland. Public opinion has already and quite spontaneously formed itself into an eager desire for the establishment of the Irish Volunteers.
0: There is no record of MacDonagh having been present at the Rotunda meeting, and there is certainly no evidence of his having been a member of the IRB at this time. Balmer Hobson, the guiding hand behind the IRB involvement in the Foundation of the Volunteers, numbers him, along with Pearce, Casement, Plunkett, McNeil, and the O'Rahilly, among the twelve not actively connected with any political party who were on the original Provisional Committee of Thirty which of course also included 12 of their own men, set up soon after the rally. Nevertheless, he threw himself immediately into recruitment and training activities. In July of 1915, at the same time as he was, characteristically, also actively involved with Plunkett and Edward Martin in the foundation of the Irish Theatre Group and the production of a new play he had written called Pagans, he was elected, doubtless with IRB approval, commander of one of the four companies of the Dublin Brigade, a position he continued to hold to the end that was now so rapidly approaching. And in April 1916, as a result of the enthusiasm, energy and flair for military training and tactics he had displayed, as well as of his evident determination to travel the road on which he had set his feet, he was co-opted to the all-powerful Military Council, as Connolly had already been co-opted in January. To the eclecticism Clark, McDermott, and the IRB leaders showed in recruiting the poet intellectuals and the socialist leader to their inner command and councils was owed the success of the rising now to come. MacDonough had already distinguished himself in the organisation of the Rossa Funeral, at which Pierce made his stirring oration, and in the arrangements for the reception of the guns at Hoth the IRB must by now have been fairly sure of their man, and they were not to be disappointed. In May 1915, he had already described his state of
1: mind and the nature of his activities to Hackett. I work hard every day at volunteer work. I'm a member of the General Council, of the Central Executive, of the Headquarters Staff. I'm Commandant of the 2nd Battalion of the Dublin Brigade and Senior Officer of the Brigade Council. In addition to the work to be done in all these capacities, I am Director General of Training for the whole country and have to keep a staff working to direct that department. But the work, half like that of a Cabinet Minister and half like that of a regular military officer, is wonderfully interesting and exhilarating. We have done more for our generation, thank God, than any of the men of the other periods did since the old clan times. More than the 98 men, or Emmet of the forty eight or sixty seven men. we are making the preparations destiny will take charge of the issue.
0: There is no doubt that with his other talents, MacDonagh combined an extraordinary aptitude for soldiering and that he enjoyed the work. But, ironically, before he was sounded and brought into the innermost grouping of all, he may not have known that there actually would be a rising. When he did know it, he welcomed the news. And on Easter Monday morning at Liberty Hall, after all the confusions of that heart-rending Sunday were over, "'He impressed several observers with his gay and optimistic air. "'Most of those who have written about them "'have spoken as if all the leaders of 1916 "'looked forward to a ritual blood sacrifice and no more. "'In Macdonough's case, there is no evidence of this. "'With an ordinary human zest, "'he looked forward to the possibility of victory, "'bore his part in the fighting with great determination, "'and was astonished and dismayed to receive an order to surrender.' In the speech he is claimed to have made at his court-martial, he is reported to have
1: declared, It will be said that our movement was doomed to failure. It has proved so. Yet it might have been otherwise. There is always a chance of success for brave men who challenge fortune. That we had such a chance, none know so well as your statesmen and military experts. Well, whether or no,
0: the greater might prevailed and Thomas Macdonough went to face the firing squad with the others. His death terminated all the vocational claims and conflicts which had determined the pattern of his life, bringing to an end the career of the minor poet, the promising playwright, the sympathetic teacher, the critic who made the first high claim for the new literature of his country, alike with that of the soldier and the patriot. Yeats, fittingly enough, numbered him with Pierce in the great poem in which he
1: counted the loss and the gain. This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end, so sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. And what if excessive love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse. MacDonagh and Macbride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. <laughs>